make your relationship completely your own. It can look like this for one person. It can look like something completely else for someone else. But the purpose is really to reconnect and how each couple does that is so idiosyncratic and so interesting and exciting. Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and connection in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is couples therapy expert, Dr. Annabelle Seif. She is the founder of Before the Leap, a course for couples to help them build a strong and lasting relationship. Welcome, Dr. Annabelle Seif. It's so good to have you here. So good to be here. Thank you for having me, both of you. So, Annabelle, you've been working a lot with this idea of commitment. You recently conducted a workshop called Before the Leap um, that teaches couples um, sort of skills and commitment. And I want to talk to you all about that and what that looks like and what that is. But maybe to start us off, if you could tell us a little bit about what is commitment and what it means in a relationship? Sure. So through my work with individuals and my work with couples, I've reflected a lot on what this means, right? Commitment in a relationship. And so the way that I've defined it is that commitment is a dedication to the relationship and a shared vision of the future, and that that's demonstrated through action and intention. So in other words, commitment's both the shared vision of the future and also the shared commitment to relating to each other in a way that fosters connection and respect. It's a good definition. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Well, I was just going to say that being committed is like this benefit, right? It's a benefits relationships. It's not guaranteed, right? And there are plenty of people who are in relationships that don't have that type of commitment and those still are valuable and bring a lot to people's lives. But the benefit of being committed is that there's this sense of higher purpose that gets generated by this idea of this shared vision and this shared commitment. And that that sense of higher purpose generates meaning through a mentality of like an us or a team. And that's a separate entity in a way from each partner as an individual, right? And that that builds generosity and collaboration. So, in your experience working with couples, how and when does commitment happen in a relationship? Like what what's the process of getting to commitment? And what what is there a moment when people typically commit or it's more an evolving process in your experience? That's a really great question because I think that there are a lot of people who have in mind this idea of like, the steps of commitment. This idea, like there's been um, more and more writers and thinkers from actually the polyamory community talking about this idea of the relationship escalator. Have you guys heard of that before? Mm-mm. So it's this cultural default of prescribed steps that we have in our culture of movement towards the next step. Right. So it's like this prescribed social script of how romantic relationships should progress, starting with establishing sexual monogamy. Right. And then entering this relationship, like making it official versus being exclusive. And then it should move on to moving in together. Uh, And then you get married and then da 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 da. And it's this idea of it's you should always be moving and you should always be moving towards a permanently monogamous cohabitating marriage. 
right? That that's the cultural expectation of this relationship escalator. And so it often fuels this question for people of like, where is this going, right? That there's this hierarchy of commitment and that you can't go backwards. Or if you, you know, move out of living together, then you've like failed in some way and you're not moving towards this ultimate goal. So a lot of polyamorous writers and thinkers have turned this idea on its head and they're emphasizing that each couple has the ability to choose their own milestones or their own markers of commitment and that those are opportunities to celebrate the relationship and that it's less about these external markers as much as the internal relationship experience. I love that metaphor and and that way of kind of taking all of these assumptions around commitment and and really kind of switching it and shifting it to like how the individual, how the couples are defining it or even how the individual person is defining it. You know, something that that came to my mind as you were describing this definition is that, and maybe at the top of the ladder, the escalator, is this idea of commitment means finding the person that you're going to be with for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And and that anything that, that cuts that short is somehow a failure of commitment or a failure of a relationship. And it's not only sort of sad to think about relationships that maybe have been long-term or maybe short-term that were really wonderful and valuable in some ways that have ended being categorized as failures, but I also think it really sets up couples for this pressure that can actually backfire around commitment. Can you say more about what you mean by backfire? That it, it, it can feel really daunting for a lot of people, mm-hmm. I think, to think about, okay, in order for this relationship to be successful, it has to be forever. We have to mm-hmm. make it work. And so then when things aren't working out perfectly, it, there's this sort of sense of, oh, my God, is this a, the relationship that's right for us? We have problems. Like there's a real, I think, just like pressure on both partners to make it work. Right. This pressure to be together for some prescribed or never ending amount of time, as opposed to a commitment to mutual respect and honesty, right? That might mean that couples are keeping things to themselves for fear that it could break them up, right? Or that like resentment builds in the relationship because they're trying to just stay together. Right, right. Almost like valuing the process versus the goals. Mm -hmm. Like rather than thinking about that escalator and being like, okay, in order for us to be successful, we have to reach all these milestones to think about like, what do we value in our relationship? Right, mutual respect, um, learning to stay and be connected with each other, checking in, making these bids for connection, you know, all whatever factors are important um, so that it's not so black and white. I also really like this idea of like, you can have many relationships within one relationship and your relationship might look different when you have children or later on or or maybe you'll have a totally different relationship with somebody else but that you can also have many relationships within one relationship that can sometimes be a very relieving idea to couples sometimes i find when they think about committing for the long term or forever right and that those markers of commitment can be completely unique to you two as a couple, right? So that this idea that, okay, so then we commit at our wedding and then that's it, right? It's like that there's this opportunity that I'm hearing you also talk about in these multiple phases of your relationship as these multiple opportunities to recommit, to reevaluate to your shared values, right? To reflect on the status of your relationship and how to celebrate that. And then you get to decide that in whatever way works for you two as a couple. And I 
think that part of the reason that polyamory and polyamorous thinkers have introduced this concept is this idea that so if someone's been married for 10 years and then they decide to open up their marriage in some way, does that mean that they're somehow less committed? Because often for people to do that, they have to actually improve their communication, be really solid in the foundation of their relationship. And so this idea that um, that it could actually be a sign of strength in the relationship to take that step rather than like a going backwards on the escalator and how that shifts this idea of the hierarchy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking too, like this idea of redefining commitment. I mean, it feels like very much something that is maybe perhaps more relevant in the straight world, that there's been so many assumptions about what mm-hmm. commitment means and how relationships should look like. And like the queer world has always had to redefine these things and really think about in, t- in a more intentional way how they want their relationship to look like. And I mm-hmm. think now, I mean, both queer and poly and open, like all of this sort of wave of questioning and challenging and redefining is really starting to become more mainstream, more heteronormative, which Mm -hmm. I think is a really beautiful thing. Definitely. So I'm curious to hear about who um, comes to you for couples therapy and also who attends these workshops and and how you work with couples where they are struggling with this idea of commitment, maybe because one person is more ambivalent about commitment um, or are people who come to see you mainly in a committed phase already? So there's, I'd say there's kind of like two buckets. So I've been in my private group practice work seeing couples both for couples therapy, right? And also for premarital counseling, which I see as very different. Um, And I use the term premarital counseling because it's kind of the best way to describe it to people. I'd love to rebrand it pre-commitment counseling, but no one knows what I'm talking about when I say that. So we'll call it premarital counseling. The way that I like to think about it is that couples therapy is for when you're in distress and premarital counseling or pre-commitment therapy is for when you are working preventively. So a helpful metaphor is that like premarital counseling is like a vaccine for relationship distress and couples therapy is a treatment. And so premarital counseling is something that ideally is delivered when you're in a healthy place in your relationship so that you build up the skills and have the conversations that'll buoy you through tough times in the future and that you can use to fight off distress. Whereas couples therapy, as you two know very well, is often for couples who are in distress. It takes a lot to get couples into couples therapy most of the time. You know, the Gottman study that says it takes the average couple six years of being actively in distress before they'll seek out couples therapy. And so at that point, there's often so much built up resentment, so many entrenched conflict patterns. It's just a very different kind of work than couples who are coming in. And I'm seeing this more and more with people in their 20s and 30s who are saying, look, I've been in therapy or I'm wellness minded in so many areas of my life and like very focused on self-improvement and preventive exercises, like both physically and mentally and emotionally. And so like, we want to just get in ahead of this before we get married and like really like clear the air, set the foundation and start our relationship or our marriage off on the right foot. It's like a very different presentation to therapy and really different needs. 
I'm wondering if you have um, looked into any outcome studies or, or come across any outcome studies of, of couples who attend premarital counseling versus those who don't? Yes, I have. <laughs> um, there's actually some really good research. The evidence that exists says that premarital counseling is really good for relationships. So studies show that couples who have engaged in premarital counseling are 30% more satisfied in their relationships, uh, report lower rates of conflict, and are less likely to get divorced. And the benefits held true up to six years later when they continue to follow up with them. So it really can be so beneficial. And those are programs, um, if I'm remembering correctly, that were religious-based. They were like um, provided like through like pre-Cana and other religious institutions. And so hearing about these programs and learning more about them, I was really thinking more and more about like our role as therapists and all of the evidence that we have access to, all the research and evidence-based skills and thinking like, okay, what, why are we waiting till people are already in distress to see them? Like we could really put these skills into practice and foster this kind of conversation with couples from a psychological perspective, especially couples who have felt not included by traditional premarital programs, right? People who are couples who are interfaith, couples who are not religious, couples who are LGBTQ+. So thinking of how to reframe this from a psychological perspective to give couples that leg up. And what can couples expect from your workshop? So it's called Before the Leap. And it's a fun and interactive workshop. And the couples that join learn the skills and have the conversations necessary for happy lasting relationships. So it's a course where a small group of couples meet and they learn a combination of didactics around skills that research shows benefit couples and then engage in exercises and guided conversations to talk about like those tough relationship topics as a way to both cover important ground and also as a way to reinforce the skills that they've learned. That's wonderful. There's also something so different about a workshop when you're around other couples. Sina and I have done couples workshops and I did my dissertation in graduate school on on couples workshops and witnessing the struggles and the things that other couples are going through and not feeling so alone in it. I mean, we weren't doing as much of the preventative work that you're doing, but I think it just really kind of helps couples like just normalize their problems. It sort of um, heightens things like emotions become more alive because there's witnesses around the root. Like there's just a kind of energy that I think comes from a group that's really different from couples who are working with an individual therapist. Yeah, I'm really excited to get that group energy and now that we're going to be delivering it in this group format and to also have this like group problem solving, right? Because as you're saying, everybody's coming up against the same thing, right? Like we can all relate to the idea that it's really hard to very vulnerably express our needs, right? And I can talk about like, okay, here's how you, here's an assertiveness script, right? Like here's a way to complain really well to your partner. And then I'm sure everyone is going to say, well, what about when this happens, right? What about when this happens? There's so many things that get in the way of us being, you know, well-related and perfectly calm, cool and collected with our partners. And so having that shared experience of everybody validating how hard it is, as you're saying, Simone, and also saying, okay, well, like this is how we get out of a conflict, 
right? And this is how we remember that, oh, actually we're friends, even though we've been fighting about the dishes, right? Like these like little ways that couples come up with that's creative and fun to get themselves out of their loop that they get stuck in and being able to share that, not because every couple has to do it the same way, but because it's a reminder that like you make your relationship completely your own. It can look like this for one person. It can look like something completely else for someone else, but the purpose is really to reconnect and how each couple does that is so idiosyncratic and so interesting and exciting to listen to. And I've had the benefit of hearing those things, you know, in my therapy room. And I think that there's such a value to couples hearing about it from each other. So clearly each couple is going to be different in terms of kind of what works for them, what kind of conversations they need to have. But I'm wondering, you know, as you built your curriculum and, and the couples that you've worked with in premarital, like what are the conversations that you think need to be had before either committing or or that contribute to like a long-term happy relationship? Mm-hmm. So there are these big conversations, right? And I'm sure everybody can think of what those are for them in their life, but they're the ones that people typically think of when we envision our future, right? So these are topics that include things like finances, religion, children, boundaries with family, work-life balance, um, me time, that comes up a lot. And it can be helpful to approach these in a kind of a a bit of a maybe indirect way at first, which is I encourage couples at first to think before getting into the nitty gritty of your budget or whatever the details are of that topic, first reflect as a couple about your shared values. So really sitting together and thinking like, what are our guiding relationship values? There's a whole part of before the leap that we talk about this. And it can really help couples identify what you as a team value, right? It re- Um, it reinforces that commitment that you have for the shared vision of the future. And it can serve as a compass in making decisions. So like, for example, let's say one person in a couple gets offered a promotion and it's in another city, right? And the couple is deciding, do we move to the city where we don't know anybody, but it's a huge financial opportunity for us in our relationship. What can sometimes happen is each person, each partner goes into like, well, what's best for me, right? And But if you're in a committed relationship, there's another question. Not that that isn't important, right? What's good for you as an individual, but also what's good for you as a unit. And so if you turn to your guiding relationship values, if one of that couple's values is wealth creation, right? Or adventure, they might make a very different choice than a couple whose values are community and family. And there's no right answer. There's no better value than someone else's value. Just identifying it together can help you realize what's best for us as a team and then how that fits into your shared future and can help serve as that compass. So I hear you're not necessarily focusing so much on the concrete stuff, but rather values in the couple as a guiding, as a way to guide making decisions. Which seems like, you know, in couples therapy, I feel like if couples learn to communicate better, become more of a team, a lot of the concrete stuff can be resolved pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which can be really hard to 
help couples believe, right? Because it, and I, and I get it, right? Like, I've been there myself in my relationship of like, but if you, if we could just resolve the issue though, right? Um, but when we can drop this pressure to win and really tune in and be curious about why this is so important to the other person, it can be really fascinating to see how our own feelings about it can shift or not but it definitely changes the course of the conversation. And so at Before the Leap, first the couples identify their values and then they do get into the nitty gritty. But with this encouragement to keep reflecting back on like, so what is that approach to spending and saving? How does that align with our guiding relationship values? Or this boundary with our families, how does that align, right? And always like kind of connecting it back and weaving it in while also hammering out some important details, right? Because finances are important, right? How, whether you want to have children or not is important. Whether you want to celebrate a certain religion in your home, that is really important to knowing whether you have a shared vision for your future, but it's also about the how, how you have the conversations. Yeah. Because so much of that can be kind of negotiated, even if there's differences, you know, really understanding and empathizing and open up space. But also, I imagine there's just things that can be very fundamentally different. One person wants to have kids, the other person doesn't. And no matter how much compassion and understanding and and good communication can help in moving through it, at the end of the day, it's a really big difference in their future. So are there red flags or things that just are kind of too difficult to work through? Like this, this would be the time when maybe you would really question, should we make that commitment forward? Mm -hmm. I think you're hitting on something so important. Um, There's this great statistic that's like 69% of all couples issues are unsolvable, right? And that it's how the conversation is had that really speaks to whether a relationship lasts. So you're, you're right on, right? Disagreeing is not in itself a red flag. That's life. That's being two human beings in close relationship. But if a disagreement is just logistically incompatible, as you're describing, and something that's really intractable, then it can indicate that the relationship would be unsatisfying for at least one person. And I would even suggest that if you really want something and your partner's going along with it begrudgingly, it's not actually that satisfying, even if you're getting your way. Right. And so I'd say one major red flag is just the refusal to even have these conversations, right? Or being met with contempt when you try to share your perspective around these disagreements. So that could look like an outright refusal to talk about something, or it could be telling someone like that their perspective is stupid or wrong and trying to talk them out of it, or even a more subtle avoidance of kind of just kicking the can down the road. I will say that avoidance is also normal when you're feeling anxious. And so often couples can avoid topics that are really not even as hot button as they think they might be. So that can be a really great time to seek out a couples therapist or to attend a workshop like Before the Leap to guide you in those conversations and reduce avoidance. What are some of the topics that you've experienced or you found that couples can be really incompatible on that where it doesn't seem workable? Something like... Someone, like you said, whether you want children or not, whether people want to live in different countries or different parts of the country, different beliefs about monogamy, uh, disagreements about religion and and how you want religion practiced in your home. Those can be really intractable conversations. Also things around finances and how to manage finances. Those tend to be really 
really tough to resolve. Yeah. And therefore very important to talk about up front. Exactly. Than mm-hmm. Once you've already made the commitment and you have this shared life together. Exactly. And, and one other red flag, which is less about looking outward at the other person's views, but also about reflecting inwards, right? And how to talk about these hot topics is if you as a partner in this relationship are secretly holding the belief that the other person's going to change their mind. Hmm. This question of like, will they like, oh, they say they don't want kids now, but they're so good with our nephew. Like they'll come around. Right. right? Right. Or so I really encourage my clients. And this is something I honestly hear more in individual work because it's kind of, it's a secret wish. So I encourage them to really reflect on how it would feel if their partner stayed exactly as they are. I think this is also such an important point because when we think about, especially when we think about more analytically, how people are drawn to each other, that often we're drawn to people that are similar to our parents, or we're drawn to qualities that are, that maybe we struggled with as kids from our parents. And then there's this kind of sometimes unconscious desire to fix that in our partner. So many of us are set up to be drawn to the things that we think we're going to change. So this issue that you're talking about, I think is quite common. This like hope, like, oh, they might be really emotionally withdrawn. But once once we really, once he falls in love with me or once she falls in love with me, they're going to change. Mm-hmm. And right. then the person realizes they've committed to the very person that they, you know, realize is recreating something that they've been trying to get out of their whole life. Right. That they've committed to this unfinished business of yes, they're changing back. They're someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. The repetition compulsion, right? Exactly. And that that doesn't mean that 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 they're also doomed. It's actually an opportunity still for you as an individual to say, okay, what if I just let go? What if I let go of this wish to fix this thing? Like, okay, sometimes my partner gets withdrawn. That's really activating to me. And I really want to change that. What what would it be like if I just accepted that part of them? And then that in itself can be really healing. If there's a way that, okay, you know, when I let go of this wish to change them, I still get so much joy and fulfillment out of this relationship. I can actually hold in mind that they deeply love me, even though when we're in this situation, they get really withdrawn and that separating my changing them from my learning to cope and regulate myself in the face of something that's very activating and triggering for me from my childhood. And that there can be a lot of healing in that, right? It's not that, okay, well, if you're in a repetition compulsion, you've chosen the wrong partner, right? I'd actually suggest that most people end up in a repetition no matter what partner they choose because that's what activates us right is those unmet needs and so how reality-based it is 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 a question but it's still an opportunity for reflection and growth absolutely so that seems like an important conversation before making that commitment is understanding what's happening for a partner underneath maybe their coping mechanisms or their defensive behavior. Like if we can understand like, oh, when I get really angry, actually I'm feeling really wounded. Or when I avoid, it's because I'm really scared that the relationship is going to blow up in conflict. That even if that doesn't change right away, because it's unlikely to transform overnight, even if it does you know, shift, that at least we understand where a partner is, that we're not demonizing them as much. 
Exactly, and painting them with this historical brush that may or may not be accurate to their experience. And that's why actually the first thing before we even get into all of the values and the conversations, the first thing that we start with it before the leap is talking about emotion skill. Because I see emotion skills underlying every other relationship skill. And it's that piece of um, emotion naming, right? And then emotion regulation. But I think specifically, Simone, what you're hitting on is that emotion naming piece of even being able to reflect on our present experience and then to share it with our partner is profoundly transformative for you as an individual. And then to also hear that from your partner, like, oh, that's where you are. That's where you go when we're in that situation and you withdrew. I had no idea. This is actually the story that I made of that based on my experience. And it's really hard to have all of those other conversations if you're not able to speak to your own emotional experience. Hi, Lovelink listeners. Our group practice, Modern Mind, is located in New York City with offices in Brooklyn and Manhattan, offering in-person and virtual psychotherapy. We provide individual, couples, and group therapy, as well as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in conjunction with a psychiatry prescriber. Therapy is a powerful experience that can transform your life and help you live it to its full potential. We're here to help take you where you want to go. To find out more about our practice, visit www.modernmind.co or email info at modernmind.co to be connected with one of our therapists. So in your work with individuals and with couples, what are people what are people's fears around commitment? Cuz a lot of people are very scared of commitment. And a lot of I mean I work with a lot of um singles who are starting relationships and experience either that they're afraid of commitment or the person that they're pursuing has talked about their fear of commitment. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The fear of commitment often, there are kind of two things that I see very frequently. One is this intimacy dilemma of how do I get close while retaining myself? Are you familiar with the story of the Schopenhauer's porcupines? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but maybe it, for yeah, our listeners. You, yeah. So there's this story, right? That there's a herd of porcupines in the forest and darkness falls and it gets really cold and all the porcupines huddle together for warmth and then they prick each other with their quills. So they all move apart to feel less poked and prodded and then they're cold again. So they move towards each other and they spend the whole night moving from cold distance to prickly closeness and that it can be a really useful metaphor in understanding the way that we as human beings have to navigate the dilemmas of intimacy right the way that closeness can be really prickly and but also loneliness can be very cold right and so how to navigate managing a sense of self in relation to other people it's a constant dance and it can be really emotionally dysregulating either position, right? Whether you're committed and in a close relationship or not. And commitment is about saying, okay, I am envisioning a future with this person. That's really close, right? That's a lot of intimacy in theory, at least. And so it can be really prickly. And for people who also have not experienced intimacy and closeness as something that can be very comfortable or at least worth the prickliness, it can be really scary. I've also heard- Or when closeness have- Go ahead. I was going to say when closeness has been dangerous in the past or painful in the past, 
that actually in order to protect yourself, distance has been really critical. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard uh, patients talk about uh, a fear of inadequacy and inability to show up in the way that their partner wants them to or needs them to. And so being left with this inadequacy around intimacy and withdrawing. Right. If I get too close, they're going to see something about me, something I feel really ashamed of or that that's really lacking in mm-hmm, some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rejection. Right. Rejection. Mm-hmm. Right. Or I'm not I'm, I'm right. I'm not going to show up in the way that they need that they need me to. There's also this other story around uh, commitment that I hear. And this might be also just being in New York City um, in this time of the world, but around commitment as like the death of other opportunity and this like could there be something better out there which is often actually a response to some prickly moment that happened in connection with another person but this fantasy of like it should be so easy and I'll just know when I know and that that can be really confusing especially for people who don't feel very grounded in their own experience Right. And so there's often this like looking outward and looking for this reassurance that like I've made the right choice or there's no one else better. I've made the best choice. And that can be a real trap. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I love how you say they can also be connected to like there could be that fear of intimacy. And this is a way of rationalizing. This isn't mm-hmm. my person. There's someone better, um, mm-hmm. which is also mm-hmm. a way to protect. Well, and the reality, too, of I think this this idea of a paradox of choice especially that I think people are really experiencing with dating apps, that it's really easy to just ghost or reject or give up on something because there's this mentality that there's always someone else available. Mm-hmm. That that I should add to the relationship escalator, right? I hear this a lot of like the like, oh, when are we deleting our apps? Right. As, a, as a step in commitment, <laughs> right? And it, it, But it's exactly that. It's this like, when do we give up the choice, at least symbolically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So if we shift a little bit into marriage, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you work with couples around the idea of marriage and the question of when should we get married? Why get married? You know, all the all the themes that come up around marriage, which is sort of the ultimate commitment. Mm-hmm. So I think most couples who come to me are saying, uh, we're thinking of getting married. I should say most couples who are in this bucket, right? But the couples who come to me, they're not saying, why should we get married? They're saying, okay, we want to get married, but we're really nervous or she's really nervous. I'm ready. There's this like mismatch or this anxiety. And so actually that question of why should we get married is the question that I often ask, right? Like why, why get married? I want to take away the assumption that that's just the next logical step, right? What does marriage mean for each of you, right? A couple should get married if it's meaningful to them, full stop, right? It's a binding legal contract, yes, with lots of benefits. And it also has meaning that's rooted in your own histories and culture. And so taking that time to reflect on what marriage means to you and hearing what marriage means to your partner, it can bring couples closer. It can change their understanding of the other person's anxieties and hesitations and excitement. So that is one of the first things I want couples to explore if they're in a bind or in some ambivalent stuck place around getting married. 
And what have you noticed in your office? Like, why are couples getting married now? Like, what are some of the reasons that people talk about? It's so personal. It's so idiosyncratic. There's often a way that it can create a real sense of safety for a lot of people. This sense of being able to be more fully yourself, to feel more trust in your partner, um, to then make the types of sacrifices that are needed to have a shared future with someone. So this idea of creating that unit in a really official, codified, legal, or religious way can allow for a certain level of selflessness or like radical generosity that can be maybe more abstract otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it can really build a lot of safety and security Mm -hmm. for people. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, sometimes it can come from a place of security, this real excitement. Let's really solidify this. There's a real symbolicness around this. And I think in that same vein, I think there's, I mean, what I've seen in my office too is a lot of anxiety in the relationship. And so marriage and and a wedding really feels like it's going to relieve that anxiety. It's going to kind of create sometimes a real, but sometimes maybe this false sense of security. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, now my partner is committed to me. Right. And then the couple decides to get engaged and then they start planning a wedding and then there's plenty of anxiety to go around, right? It did not relieve all the anxiety, right? It's like the, then there's this transitional period. And again, if it's done with a lot of thoughtfulness and commitment to each other can be a really important transitional period, this like wedding planning, if the couple decides to have a wedding that can bring up and then flush out a lot of these anxieties. Yeah. So, Annabelle, you and I talked about this a little bit on our call, and I'd love to hear more about why wedding planning is so notoriously stressful for couples, like what comes up for them. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about like how to how to work through it in the most cohesive way with your partner, because I I hear this all the time. My friends, myself and my wedding. I mean, it's it's just there's a lot that needs to be done. And it seems to bring up a lot of cracks in relationships. Yes. So I would say that there are some primary areas of anxiety that I've seen for couples that I work with when they're getting married are specifically around weddings, right? One is about this person is the one, this kind of perfectionism pressure is what I call it. This idea of like, oh my God, now you're the person, the person who I've held in my mind in some fantasy for much of my life and all of these expectations and wishes compared to the reality of an actual human person, right? With all of their flaws and reality. Um, And so all of those expectations and fears and fantasies get kind of brought down upon them and upon you. Um, This idea that now you have to have this perfect day, and wanting everything to be like just perfect to validate that you've chosen the right person, which then can leave people feeling like, well, we shouldn't have conflict if we're gonna be perfect. So it's a recipe for disaster, right? Because conflict's actually so important to grow closer as a couple. But if relationship perfectionists are seeing conflict as a failure, there's a lot of avoidance, a lot of efforts to like kind of get them into being the person that you thought they should be, um, it can be a really sticky place to be. 
right? And so part of it is first reminding yourself that a perfect relationship doesn't exist, right? Your partner is going to disappoint you because they're a person. And then also this grieving process that can be done that actually often has nothing to do with your partner at all. But this process of like what all of those wishes and beliefs about the one are, where they come from, how they've served you, how they aren't serving you in this current moment, and letting them go and making space for the beauty of the reality that you're in and the reality of the person that you've chosen. So there's that, there's that like perfectionistic piece. Then there's also the way that like once there's a wedding, family is more involved, right? And families often have a lot of ideas around marriages and weddings in particular and their own reaction to like separation and individuation of each partner from their family of origin into being a new unit and what their role will be in this couple's lives. And so navigating how to advocate for you as a unit of two to your family of origin can be a very new experience for couples. They often don't really have to do that in the same way until they're planning a wedding. And that can bring up a lot of feelings around boundaries and assertiveness and family dynamics. It's an enormous pressure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So much pressure. And then there's also the piece of it that's just logistical, which is that for many couples, this is their first shared project. Unless you've you know bought a house together before or have children already, like a lot of times this is the first real big shared project and a lot of division of labor arguments come up around uh, wedding planning and this meaning like the breakdown of who does what with wedding planning and how it gets divided. Um, and so I actually created a like how-to guide for couples that's available as a free download on my website of like how to divide labor and like rules for dividing labor because it's it's such a hot topic and it also is a great way to set the stage and practice with this wedding skills that you can use for the rest of your life and all the shared projects of your future. Mm, what a great resource for people. Yeah, people should definitely check that out because I, I think that couples often forget how big of a project this is, that there's this maybe hope or fantasy that things will just naturally work out, that you can kind of just assume that your partner is going to do exactly what you think and hope for, and that things are just going to magically go smoothly. And in fact, like it's, it's a year-long project that requires a lot of delegation, a lot of communication. And so I think, I think framing it as a work project is really helpful because it can also take some of that emotion out of it. And and not that that emotion is bad, like a lot of that is good, but I think there's so much pressure already on what a wedding symbolizes for everyone. And I, I'm sort of noticing in the way that you described it, not only with the couple, but with the family, like what weddings mean is much more than an event. And that's what makes it, I think, feel really stressful and really complicated. Because if it was just a dinner party, even of the same proportion, it would be very different. But it's a lot of loss. It's a lot of feelings of, um, yeah, like transitioning into this new life, pressure on the relationship, a new family that you're welcoming into your world. So all of that becomes much more fraught. I always like this idea of there being, there's always like turbulence at the boundaries of life. And this is a really big transitional moment for people. And so it makes sense that there would be a lot of feeling, big feelings because of this transitional moment. But our culture 
has this idea or this narrative that it's supposed to be perfect and that's so counter to most people's experience so it, you know i imagine that a lot of people feel like a failure as they're going through this process of planning a wedding that should be this perfect thing which it's inevitably not going to be I love that way of thinking of it. And it's a boundary of life that can go on for a very long time, right? Like it can take a year or more for people to plan weddings. And so it can be also a very protracted process and this wish that it also be a reflection of your relationship. Okay, like, yes, there are going to be moments that feel really magical. And there are also going to be moments that feel very like logistical and boring and menial. And that that is completely unrelated to or not a reflection of the relationship. I think that a lot of times the wishes that come up in wedding planning are wishes that people hold for how communication should be in their relationship, right? A lot of wishes of mind reading that they'll, oh, they'll just like, if they really cared about me, they'd just see how stressed out I am. And without my needing to ask, they'd pick up the slack and call the florist. And I understand and validate like that wish, right? It would be so nice. If we didn't have to ask for what we wanted and needed, it would make life a hell of a lot easier. We wouldn't have to risk rejection. It's not marriage, right? It's not relationships. And so using this as an opportunity to really be direct in communication. And also I encourage couples to express their gratitude when they notice the other person's work. Because a lot of things around wedding planning and division of labor in general is how much of what we do goes unseen because we only see what we do, right? We're only in our own heads. And so having also opportunities to talk about what you've done and check things off the to-do list together, it's also an opportunity to say, oh, thank you so much for doing that, right? And for both people to get that gratitude and that appreciation and feel seen in their efforts towards making this moment happen. I mean, this is a really good, I think, pitch for premarital counseling, because if you can if you can figure out how to navigate a wedding planning smoothly, it sort of like sets the foundation for all the future projects that you're going to have as a couple. Buying a home, having a baby, um, creating a family, like all of these things that really require a lot of kind of moving towards each other and trying to stay connected despite things being very stressful in these moments. And when things don't go smoothly, which they inevitably will, how to then repair and recover and use that moment of conflict in a healthy way. I mean, when I tell couples that they're going to be learning about healthy conflict at the workshop, they're like, that's an oxymoron. Like, what are you, what's that? <laughs> right? That, that conflict could actually be a moment or an opportunity to grow closer, to vent out some frustrations and in a way that feels more connected and allows just like that kind of energy to enter and then exit your relationship. It's, it's really important. It's a frustrating process, wedding planning, right? Like there's times when that frustration can, will be between the two of you and that's okay. As long as it's done with mutual respect and that there's a repair on the other side of it, like that's actually can be really safe and containing and joining. Do you know any stats on whether couples are, more marriages are happening or fewer marriages are happening these days? I mean, I think a lot about how women are making more money now. There's more of a sense of independence for women and maybe less of a need to be married. I don't know if it's so much. I mean, I'm from Denmark where there are fewer marriages than in the United States because healthcare is not tied to marriage. 
women make more money, there's more equality. But I don't know, I don't know about the US whether that's there's any shift there. Marriage rates are definitely declining. I know that there hasn't been an updated study that I've seen since 2019. So I'm really curious when post-COVID data comes out. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that people aren't getting married. Overall, it's trending downward. Fewer and fewer people are getting married. Um, I have like theories around it that I think are similar to yours, like changes in zeitgeist around commitment and ideas around like um, you know, having a child with someone before marriage are changing. People's connection to religion in a more traditional sense is changing. Financially, weddings are really expensive. And so during any time of, of financial unrest, fewer and fewer people get married. But it's it's trending downward every year, it seems like, since the 60s, 70s. And I wonder too if less there's less trust in the establishment that extends to weddings, you know, like this kind of challenging of norms, challenging of traditions, challenging of government policies. And I noticed, at least anecdotally, that I think there's a trend of people who are getting married as getting married outside of traditional structures, right? So getting married by a friend, getting married by a justice of the peace, right? That this idea of also like the connection between religion and marriage is changing over time. And that's also part of why I'm thinking more and more about like all the ways in which commitment manifests, right? Is that I do think that more and more people are going to be stepping off the relationship escalator and being really thoughtful about what works for them as a couple and ways that they can commit. And I invite people to before the leap who are getting engaged and getting married, but also people who are taking other leaps, right? That they could be buying a home together, people who are, you know, talking about family planning together and don't plan to get married at all, that all of that is commitment. And one is not better or more serious than the other. It's really about your experience of it. So Annabelle, how can people register for your workshop and get in touch with you? So anyone who's interested in learning more about Before the Leap or what I do can go to beforetheleap.com or they can check it out on Instagram. It's at B, the letter B, then the number four, the leap. Um, And I also have a professional Instagram linked there at Dr. Annabelle Seif. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both for having me. 